Welcome. You're listening to the podcast where we interview founders innovating at the near frontier, whose companies will give you a glimpse of the future. Near Frontier is brought to you by Cantos, a venture firm that invests in world-positive deep tech startups at Pre-Seed and Seed. To learn more, visit us at cantos.vc. An estimated 1 billion people suffer from neurodegenerative diseases worldwide. Some, like frontotemporal dementia and ALS, are acute and initiate debilitating symptoms quickly. Others, like Alzheimer's disease and multiple sclerosis, are considered chronic. Some are brought on by traumatic events, like strokes, and others are considered diseases of aging. Regardless of the cause and the nature of the disease, we have very little clinical control over neurodegenerative diseases. Today, we're joined by two entrepreneurs working to change this. Mike Horowitz and Scott Patterson, founders of Modulo, are creating a platform to examine the neuroimmune system, or specifically microglia cells. These cells are like the Swiss army knife of the brain. They shift between neuroprotective and neurodegenerative states. By combining millions of experimental data points with machine learning and clinical models, Mike and Scott are developing therapeutics that shift these microglia cells into a protective state to calm the neurodegenerative disease, all the way from brain inflammation to brain injury. While these therapeutics have the potential to halt several neurodegenerative diseases and even act as an anti-inflammatory for the brain, Modulo is first focusing on a specific group of patients with frontotemporal dementia and ALS. You might be familiar with this form of early onset dementia if you followed Bruce Willis's recent diagnosis or the founder of Cloudflare, Lee Holloway's tragic story. In this episode, we'll get into the brain's immune system and using artificial intelligence to reprogram it with Mike and Scott. Neurofans, you're in for a real treat. Let's get into it. Ami, thank you for having us. We're really excited to be on the podcast. My name is Mike Horowitz. I am the CEO and co-founder of Modulo Bio. Just a quick little bit about my background. I've been in biotech now for almost 20 years. Been at both ends of the development spectrum on clinical stage companies and at early platform stage companies. Most recently, I was at a company called Notable Labs, which is actually where I met Scott. Notable is a company that is focused on developing a predictive technology for blood cancers. So what I mean by that is that we built a fully automated, high-throughput, flow cytometry-based platform that could predict a patient response to different therapeutics that could be given to that patient. Before that, I was with a company at the complete other end of the development spectrum. It's called C-Lane Biotechnologies, and we were developing a novel protein-based therapeutic scaffold. So you can think of it like an antibody 2.0. It had all the functionality of an antibody, meaning it could bind to a target and signal the immune system, but it could also do enhanced functionality like site-specific drug conjugation or bispecificity in, in a very elegant way. I uh, sold that company in 2017, and prior to that, I was at a small biotech venture firm focused on very early-stage investments in life sciences, really cutting-edge technology with a criteria that you know you could get to a technical de-risk point in under a year in $100 million. And uh, part of the reason I did that is because I'm a lawyer by training. I started my career at Wilson Sonsini helping everyone from the solo entrepreneur all the way up to Fortune 50 companies. But a lot of my job was helping entrepreneurs get technology out of universities and negotiating with tech transfer offices, which is quite difficult and lengthy. And so the genesis for the Biotech Investment Fund was to do early stage research outside of the university context so we could own the IP very clean. I'll turn it over to Scott. 
Thanks, Mike. And thanks, Ami, for having us. Great to be here. My name is Scott Patterson. I'm co-founder and CTO at Modulo Bio. My background is on the software and computational biology side of the spectrum. I started at Johns Hopkins working on a PhD in biomedical engineering and biophysics, ended up dropping out early after three years to join a company called Council as a founding engineer and later VP of engineering. At Council, we are doing genetic testing for reproductive health and oncology. We built a highly automated software-driven lab, testing millions of patients, doing $150 million in revenue. I was there for eight years, built a 50-person software team and a bunch of the initial scientific code to la- launch the company. After Council, I joined Notable Labs, which, as Mike mentioned, is where we met as the VP of engineering, leading the software, lab automation, data science, and product teams, helped build the technical team and the technical platform, and was there for a bit over three years. And now I'm currently obsessed with using technology on the software, lab automation, machine learning side to harness the brain's immune system for both health and broader cognitive longevity. So you both went from working on blood cancer to the switch to neurodegenerative disease and neuroscience. Can you explain what the impetus was behind starting Modulo? What sort of drove you to focus on neuro since that's quite the switch? You can argue, I argue that maybe the immune system is more complex than neuroscience, but I think both of them are pretty up there and Modulo works on the intersection of both. So arguably the most complex science out there. I would definitely agree with you. It is a very complex space, but a a very important one from my perspective. So not only was I in blood cancer before this, but I was in oncology for my entire virtually 20-year career in in biotech. I moved into neurology for a very personal reason. So my best friend's mom was diagnosed with a disease called frontotemporal dementia four years ago. Frontotemporal dementia is a neurodegenerative disease. It is somewhat similar to Alzheimer's in the sense that it can manifest with the loss of memory, but it also has some additional elements which are particularly nasty. It can change your baseline personality and and do some other things. And it can be a lot earlier onset and faster progressing than Alzheimer's. And unfortunately, there are no therapies for frontotemporal dementia. So when this diagnosis was given to my best friend, he's in real estate and has no way of navigating the complex world of clinical trials. And so I started to help him think about what kind of options might be available for his mom. And then we got another bombshell in that her frontotemporal dementia is driven by a specific genetic mutation. It's called the C9R72 mutation. Not that it's particularly important, but in the context of the conversation, other than it is a very specific genetic marker for this type of disease. And the problem is that it's a genetic, it's a dominant genetic mutation. And what that means is that my best friend has a 50-50 chance of inheriting this gene. And if he does inherit the gene, it pretty much guarantees that he will develop either ALS or FTD, frontotemporal dementia, or if he's really unlucky, both. And if he has it, his two little girls would each have a 50-50 chance of inheriting the gene and developing those diseases as well. And one of them is, is my goddaughter. So when we got that diagnosis, you know, our thinking shifted from what can we do for my best friend's mom over the course of the next year or two years So what can we do for my best friend if he needs it over the next 10 years? And we did a couple of things. We started a nonprofit called the C9 Foundation. We started a journal club and just started to recruit the smartest people we knew, both from industry and academia, both those who have focused on this problem to educate people who haven't, but also just really smart people, you know, to start thinking about this challenging space. And through that process, we recruited a guy named Justin Achita, who's gotten my third co-founder at Modulo. 
And he's one of the world experts in the neuroimmune system and the contribution of the neuroimmune system to C9 or 72 ALS and FTD. And when he presented to our journal club, he presented his work on the neuroimmune system. And to be quite honest, that was the first time I even heard that you have a neuroimmune system. I always thought that you had a blood brain barrier, nothing gets in, nothing gets out, and that's really all you need. But it does turn out that your brain has its own immune system, which is spearheaded by a cell called a microglia cell. And it's a really interesting, complex cell. And it's a very powerful opportunity that hasn't really been explored to the extent that I think it should be from a therapeutic perspective in the context of these different diseases. And so that was how I got shifted into neurology and excited about the neuroimmune system and, you know, started thinking about how to tackle this problem. Fortunately, I had good friends like Scott and Justin who have very different skill sets than I do, but very necessary for tackling this problem. And at the end of the day, modulo was, was the end result. You know, we had a, a very specific idea about how we could tackle the problem, leveraging the technical inflection points on the wet lab side, meaning the cell culture models that have been enabled by induced pluripotent stem cells and also on the computational side, where you can take large amounts of data and start bringing them together to identify signal across very different assay systems or models. So you mentioned you, Scott, Justin, all have these very different skill sets that you bring that obviously a company like Modulo needs. Can you describe some of the earliest days for Modulo for some of the future founders out there? Basically, like you have an idea, you have each other. What are the next steps that you need to do to get a really highly technical company off the ground? Scott can weigh in on this one too, but the very early stages of company development, in my opinion, are really pressure testing the idea and you know the approach that you want to take. So it's very important to learn as much as you can about the space, about what other people are doing, understanding where you think they might be not necessarily making a mistake, but making a decision that would be different from what you would want to make if you were trying to tackle the problem. And so very early stage modulo was a lot of me and Scott and Justin talking about what other people were doing, what we thought you should be doing. Could we do that actually? What would it require from a resource perspective, both financially and with different skill sets from different people? And then technically, you know, how confident were we that we could put it all together in a meaningful way that would produce some kind of insight that was different from what other people had seen in the past? And all of those things had to really come together for us to get comfortable that we wanted to start or at least continue investing our time and resources and energy you know, into a problem like this. Fortunately, you know, the potential benefit of being able to harness the brain's immune system or the neuroimmune system to combat these horrific diseases is tremendous. And so all of us were incredibly excited, incredibly passionate about it. And because of the technical inflections that have happened really recently, there's a real opportunity to put a bunch of different things together in a unique way that leads to a possibility of a different approach towards these diseases. Before you get to unpack the science more, you touched on the different mutations that are involved with maybe genetically predisposing you to developing a disease like frontotemporal dementia. So I'm curious, was it obvious from the get-go that you, the way to tackle this massive problem is through therapeutics, or did you consider things like better screening, for example? We considered all options. 
for these types of diseases. With respect to the specific C9R72 genetic mutation that causes ALS and FTD, one of the challenges is screening is not enough because even if you know you have the genetic mutation, there's nothing that you can do about it. You can change your diet. You can do, you know, kind of some of the potentially soft therapeutic approaches where, you know, you're not necessarily addressing the root cause, but you're trying to bolster whatever the systems are that keep those deleterious effects in check. But I don't think that that's a viable option until you have more concrete steps that you can take to address the future manifestation of the disease. And so for us, it was always really, is there a therapeutic approach that we could come up with to counteract, at least counteract the symptoms and the progression or halt the progression of the disease. Ideally, you roll the disease back and you're actually treating it to the point where you're restoring function that's been lost. But that's, of course, a very difficult problem. So from the modulus standpoint, our goal has always been let's understand as much as we can about the disease and figure out therapeutic angles that we can take that can make a big difference and benefit in patients' lives. So would you say these therapeutics are more like chronic interventions that you would take consistently to roll back symptoms or halt the progression of the disease as opposed to something more acute like a chemotherapy? When we think about our approach to these diseases, we're focusing on harnessing the neuroimmune system. Again, bringing it back to this particular indication, C9R72, ALS, or FTD, we are not fixing the root cause of the disease. Patients will still have the C9R72 genetic mutation. It will still be causing problems for them. Ideally, our therapeutic approach is to bolster the neuroimmune system so that it can protect the patient from manifesting the symptoms of the disease. And that's what we believe is happening throughout most of somebody's life. If you're born with the C9R72 mutation, you have some period of life where you do not have disease symptoms, even though that genetic mutation is causing problems from the day you're born. And we believe that one of the core systems that protects you from manifesting the symptoms is the neuroimmune system. It's these microglia cells that are in a, what we call a neuroprotective state, meaning they're protecting the neurons from any of the deleterious effects of that mutation. And so what we're trying to do is develop therapies that, in essence, reprogram microglia that have shifted out of the neuroprotective state into either a neurotoxic state or some other state where they're no longer helping the neurons and put them back into the state that's helping the neurons. And so over time, it is entirely possible that once we reprogram these cells, they will still fall back into a different state. They'll lose their reprogramming and we'll have to come back and, you know, have some kind of chronic administration of a therapeutic on some kind of schedule to maximize the the beneficial impact of the you know reprogrammed microglia. So you could think of the microglia cells as sort of like gatekeeper cells on whether they're neuroprotective, neurodegenerative, toxic to the brain or protective. And this single cell type has multiple different states that flip back and forth accordingly. And they're all implicated in multiple different neurodegenerative diseases, right? Like ALS, dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, even things like multiple sclerosis. Is that the right way to think about it? Microglia are maintenance and housekeeping cells of the brain. So they're involved in synaptic pruning. They're involved in turning up and turning down different parts of the brain. They're involved in damage repair. and 
as these complex cells that have the cellular intelligence, this decision-making, this state flow that they're going through, they can be by default helpful for preventing disease, but they can get stuck in certain states. And I think we, we can simplify it and say whether they're in a neuroprotective state or a neurotoxic state, the reality is we want to push cells into their baseline function where they can be toxic or protective based on what needs to happen. So if there's a toxic protein that they need to clear, they can go and clear that protein. If there's a part of the neuron that needs to be protected, they can go and do that. So we're really looking at modeling the decision-making and state flow that these microglia cells go through and then looking for opportunities to push them into the state where they can be on like overall protective to the neurons in these particular diseases where there is something going wrong or the microglia are getting stuck in a particular state. I like to think of the microglia as kind of like a Swiss army knife of the brain. And there are certain times when you need the pocket knife to come out and certain times when you need the screwdriver to come out, depending on what's going on with the neurons. And our goal is to take the Swiss army knife when it gets stuck with the pocket knife out there and, and be able to put that blade away and let the Swiss army knife pull out the right tool for the context that it's in. I like that, especially since it has the, the dual use. Sometimes they, they turn harmful. Looking at neuroscience in the context of microglia, relatively new discovery. So microglia have been known for a long time in terms of being a component of the brain. Initially, they were considered cells that were unimportant and something that was getting in the way of studying the neurons. Over time, the importance has been more and more unmapped and, and unraveled. The history follows a very similar pattern to cancer, where diseases initially are defined based on region or what organ they affect. But once you sort of peel back the layers, you realize that there's underlying signaling that's going on and that there's an underlying immune component. So I'd say that it's following that same pattern where the importance of the neuroimmune system, while complex, is becoming more and more central as one of the hallmarks of neurodegeneration. And ways of modeling that are being unlocked by technical inflections that are going on actively now to be able to really have these multicellular models in a dish that recapitulate the aspects of the disease that are important. But microglia were discovered over almost 100 years ago. Even the name belies the original thought process about the importance of the cell. Micro meaning little and glia meaning glue. You know, people just thought it was the stuff in between the neurons that kind of held everything together. And it turns out that microglia are more like a little octopus. They can move around. They have little tentacles that stick out. They can touch, you know, other neurons. They can touch the microenvironment. They're constantly sensing what's going on. But it hasn't been until, you know, the last... 15 to 20 years that the field has really taken off. And really in the last five years with the advent of the protocols for differentiating induced pluripotent stem cells into microglia, that you can really start diving into the biology and creating robust cell models of, of what's happening in, in different contexts. So by creating these cell models, you're trying to figure out what the ideal state of microglia is and how to control that. Is there like an ideal outcome for it therapeutic or is it very dependent on the type of disease you're going after? Is there like a generalizable version of controlling microglia? Or is it because it's such a complex cell that has so many different functions, like the Swiss army knife that you mentioned? Is it a matter of like dosing? Is it a matter of changing the type of therapeutic and how you attack the microglia cells? How, how do you sort of think about that? From a high level, I think that there is potentially commonality for different microglia states across indications. So this is getting a little bit back to what Scott was talking about 
in terms of the evolution of classification of diseases. Cancer went through a massive evolution in terms of classification from like region to then attribute and you know then to the advent of immuno-oncology. I think in, in neurology, we haven't really gone through that process yet. It's still very much region specific, but there are attributes of different diseases that are common. You know, some of the neurodegenerative diseases have inflammatory processes that are happening. And you could imagine a microglia state that's anti-inflammatory could be beneficial across those different conditions. The level of benefit will depend on the specific conditions of those diseases. What we envision at Modulo is ultimately having a panel of microglia modulating therapeutics and being able to shift microglia into many different states depending on the need of the specific indication. A good example is multiple sclerosis. In multiple sclerosis, you have degradation of the myelin sheaths that surround the neurons, and that leads to kind of cross-firing. Like, you can think of it as a wire that's lost its insulation, right? And there are drugs out there now that can stop the cause of the degradation of the myelin sheath, which is typically an inflammatory process. But there's nothing out there to cause the remyelination of those neurons. You can't repair the damage. You can just halt you know, kind of further damage. But microglia actually have been shown to play a role in remyelination of neurons. So they have a, a state where they stimulate another cell called an oligodendrocyte, which actually causes the remyelination of the neurons. And so that would be a state that's very specific to multiple sclerosis because that wouldn't necessarily have a real benefit in, for example, Alzheimer's disease. But if you had a different state of microglia that was, you know, caused microglia to tamp down on inflammation, that would be relevant in ALS and frontotemporal dementia and Parkinson's and in Alzheimer's disease, because all of those have a hallmark of, of inflammation. Are there different biomarkers that you would be searching for amongst the patients that enroll in a clinical trial, for example, that Modulo would be running? Does that look sort of like a companion diagnostic? Do you even need to look at biomarkers since Microglia, if you can control the inflammation, that's a pretty generalizable thing. That's a hallmark of all neurodegenerative disease. The question there is how specific do you really need to get? The biomarker strategy for these different drugs is always going to be important. You're always going to want to have a measure of the engagement of your therapeutic and the effect it's having on the microglia. Whether or not there is a biomarker for, for example, effect size, that is still yet to be seen. And when I talked about targeting inflammation as a way to go after these different diseases, I believe that an anti-inflammatory state of microglia would be beneficial in all of these diseases, but I don't know to what extent of an effect it would have therapeutically. The anti-inflammatory compounds that we're discovering right now and are focused on C9 or 72 ALS and FTD, we have very specific biomarkers for this state of the microglia and the effect that they have in, in terms of being neuroprotective. And we strongly believe that those will have a very profound effect in the specific disease subset we've been modeling. We think that they will also be relevant in diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But until we have the ability to build those models and test the specific effect of those, that cell state, that neuroprotective cell state in those models, we don't know the magnitude. And it may be that there's a different microglia cell state that has a similar profile, but it's distinct in some key ways that has a much more meaningful impact on the actual disease progression in those indications. Those are the additional variables. As we think about different indication expansion, it's possible that the same drug will work across multiple indications, but it's also equally possible that we will be developing unique drugs for these different indications to maximize the beneficial impact of the different microglia cell states on the disease progression. 
Right. I can imagine there being a lot of off-label uses once your first ALS drug makes it through clinic. Along those lines, you mentioned these models that you're building to validate different sets of indication expansion, also whether the drug is doing what it needs to do. What do those models look like? So we work with cells from patients that have C9ORF72 or other genetic conditions that are tied to different subtypes of diseases. We create induced pluripotent stem cells from those cells from the patients, differentiate them into microglia, neurons, astrocytes, and other relevant glial cells, and then put them together into a model that recapitulates the, the facet of the neuromine signaling that, that's relevant. A big part of the platform is using those patient-derived cells specifically so that we have the signaling that's relevant to the disease type. And when we really look at modeling the cellular intelligence of the microglia, so the state flow, the decision-making, the logic of these cells, and we're doing that both from the cellular model perspective, where we have the, the signaling that's relevant for the disease, and then from a machine learning perspective, where we're looking at the causal signaling structure of the neuroimmune system around these particular genetic mutations that, that are causal of disease. And we're using the machine learning model to be able to make predictions about what will shift cells into a protective state for the neurons. And then we go back to the cellular model and we do perturbations using CRISPR gene editing, using small molecules, using antisense oligos to look at how we can push the microglia and what is the functional response that we see in the cell model. And I want to add a little bit to that. Like one of the key and unique elements of what we do at Modulo is, is really we focus on patient-derived samples. So we actually identify people with the relevant genetic mutation and the disease indication. In the case of our first indication, it is C9R72, ALS, and FTD. And we derive ourselves from those patients. This is important because what we've seen in our own work is that you see different signaling when you look at patient-derived cells versus looking at healthy control cells that you artificially stimulate which is what a lot of the industry has been doing previously. You know, because it is difficult to make induced pluripotent stem cells and differentiate those cells into the different neuronal cell types, the easiest way to do it is to take cells that have been previously banked that are, you know, from healthy donors, and you can artificially stimulate microglia to be active and angry using either LT LPS or ATP. And then you can learn a lot about the microglia. But what we've seen is that the signaling that you get from C9R72 AL ALS or FTD patient microglia in neurons is distinct and different from what you see from healthy controls. And you really need to go to that source material, that patient-derived source material, to understand the unique biology that's at play in these different diseases. This is one of the most common problems in biology, one being you have data that is unlabeled and you don't really know how to use it, so how do you, you know, set up the right systems to make that data usable once you acquire it? But then a precursor to that problem is where do you even get those patient cells, right? Like everybody sort of knows that going right to the source is the most accurate model, but it's also very difficult to obtain, especially for such a specific subset like C9 ALS. So how have you approached as an early stage company making those partnerships and acquiring some of these models and cell lines that you need? So fortunately, that problem is, is, I think, getting more tractable with the different patient advocacy groups that have sprung up around all these different indications. You know, so there are readily available sources for patient-derived samples 
In particular for us, our academic co-founder, Justin Achita, has been studying these diseases for some time and has identified patient samples that have the right genetic mutations that he's been working with in the past. So that you know, was the first set of samples that we brought in. Then we expanded and started going to consortia like the ALS, Answer ALS Consortia. And their goal was to identify a thousand different patients with ALS and to generate iPS cells from those patients. And so they have great annotation as to the clinical history and whatever you know, kind of subset of ALS these patients have. And so we were able to identify additional cell lines that we can use through Answer ALS. There's another great resource called Coriel. That's a cell banking company, and they let you search through their annotated library and then identify cell lines that you're interested in. And they also have, you know, kind of really nice annotations when it comes to different disease indications or genetic markers, et cetera. So that part of the, the problem has been made easier. It has historically been very difficult, but with the patient advocacy groups, commercial organizations like Coriel, and the academic partnerships that we have with Justin, we've addressed that to quite some extent. What is more challenging is finding access to relevant postmortem brain samples. So whenever we think about this problem, it is incredibly important to get patient samples that you can create cell models from. But with induced pluripotent stem cells or with any cell model, really, there's the potential for artifact because these are not these are contrived systems. They're not perfect reproductions of the biology that happens in a person's head. And so what we try to do to alleviate the risk of identifying some artifact with our induced blood stem cell models is to collect postmortem brain samples, which are, in essence, the best resource from, you know, directly from human patients that's available right now, since you can't really go and take biopsies of people's brains when, when they're alive at this point. So the postmortem brain samples provide a, you know, window into the actual biology that's happening in the case of microglia, they have to be collected in a very specific way, a certain time after death. They have to be processed so that you don't change the transcriptomic profile. But we have forged collaborations with other academic institutes that specialize in doing this work. And so we've been able to get early access to large collections of postmortem brain samples, which really accelerates and gives us confidence that the biology that we identify in our cell models when it recapitulates in these postmortem brain samples, is in fact real biology and not an artifact. So you're touching on this idea of how important community and patient community in specific is in bio. And I think that's something that I hadn't really seen that much of in the past and is starting to become more and more common given how if you're interacting with the right patients, it makes clinical trial recruitment significantly easier and you can, you know, you don't even need to do as much screening, you're already working with the right group of patients. So this is something that I think is increasing the latest ALS drug that was approved. It was approved really fast, partially because they were able to get the right types of patients involved pretty early on. And I think it's something Modulo does quite well. How do you forge some of these relationships? How has that really changed? Has it at all changed the way that you view neurodegenerative disease and your approach in general? Yeah, so I can give a shout out to a couple of folks that are doing great work here. So one person, Jean Swidler, she is a big advocate for C9 patients in the prodromal phase and C9 patients with ALS and FTD. And she's doing a ton of work of connecting companies, working with the FDA and documenting the process that she's going through so that the world has a good sense of, you know, what are the challenges and what are the hurdles to be able to push forward to try to get treatments earlier and earlier in disease progression. 
Another friend and previous colleague, Shivani Nazareth, she has C9 in her family and recorded an amazing podcast on her journey to the diagnose, diagnosis for her mother. And that's available and we can include the link for that as well. And so I think it's, you know, networking within folks that that are very vocal about their work and, and are sharing a lot of what they're doing. The brainstorm, being open-minded about how that can lead to faster, more accelerated trials or getting the right patients involved with the trials earlier on that can lead to, to funding or grant opportunities to be able to support that work and accelerate that work. And I think it also is a testament to how Modula was started. You know, it was started because of a patient and, you know, potential future patients. So we've always viewed it very much through that lens and have always tried very hard to engage the patient community as we've been moving forward. An ancillary benefit, of course, is accelerated clinical trial potential, but just in general, it helps us to understand there's a significant magnitude to this problem that most people aren't aware of. And I think it's one of the main challenges when it comes to neurodegenerative diseases like frontotemporal dementia or Alzheimer's as compared to something like ALS. In frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's, the patient themselves gets lost and can no longer be an effective advocate for themselves. And so it falls on the family and the caregivers to do that. Whereas in diseases like ALS, you still have enough of the patient there through the process that they can be very effective advocates for themselves. Definitely. I think that's more of a secret weapon than anything. You can have IP, you can have a great team, but at the end of the day, you, you really need that impetus and that drive that patients bring. So really cool to start seeing that movement kind of come up and, and have communities in, in bioform around various diseases. Switching gears a little bit, over the course of the conversation, we've talked about the stem cell platform, we've talked about how you make different multiomic measurements to see what's really going on in these models, and then also this machine learning component of figuring out what predictions you can make about microglia and their states. How does this all come together and what makes Modulo's platform unique? Those two key pieces of the platform are the machine learning model, currently built on 73 billion data points, actively growing, and the cellular model where we have the key cells, the neurons, the astrocytes, and the microglia together in a dish. The pillars that we think about, one being the cellular intelligence, so the decision state flow modeling of these microglia, modeling that both from the cellular model perspective and from the machine learning model. I mentioned the idea of predicting and perturbing, so from the machine learning model making predictions of the signaling in the cell state, doing this perturbation in the model, and then we think about this idea of active learning. So use or making decisions about where we want to generate the next set of training data based on where we see high levels of variance, where we see conflicting information, where we see some sub-network of signaling that is really interesting, and then going and generating data there to build out our model. We look at a lot of uh, transcriptomic data and high content imaging. When we're looking at high content imaging, we focus a lot on the deep phenotyping of the microglia. So looking at the morphology, looking at the relationship of the microglia to the neurons and how they're moving around as a way of functionally characterizing what state they're in, whether they're in a protective state, whether the neuron is responding in a positive way or a negative way to the most recent interaction of that cell. And all of that is kind of feeding into this cycle of, of growing, expanding the model, both the machine learning and the cellular model. What are some of the outputs of the model when there is that many features going into it that are sort of all over the place? 
I mean, the key thing that we're looking for is this map of the signaling space. So looking for this map that is layered based on key clinical, biological, or technical features. So we can zoom in on different facets of neuroprotection and neurotoxicity, looking at where the differences are. So we want to see the maps of the different states, where there are key differences that can then lead to things that are therapeutically relevant that we can then go and try in the lab and see what the effect is there. And then from the model, then we can expand into other animal models and other ways of validating if that biology is real or artifacts of the, the stem cell model itself. And the ultimate output, of course, is, you know, is there a therapeutic target that we want to go after and try to take into the clinic to, to help impact the disease progression? One of the things that I'm always really impressed about when, whenever we hop on the phone is even if only three or four days have passed between our calls, you always have some new experiment that you're excited about. So the pace that at which these machine learning models really accelerate how, how quickly you can do the science is impressive. But at the same time, I'm, I'm curious if there are any studies that you can talk about where maybe you had this aha moment or you were you know, really excited that the thing that you've been thinking about for so long is finally working. I mean, I think the, the biggest data set that really led to us launching the company was the animal data showing that the first target out of the platform was having an effect on mice. So we have a mouse model that is a longer run mouse model that shows sort of the aging phenotype of the mice, where we were able to give a inhibitor of the, the first target that we found. And we were able to see recovery of the motor function in mice that were losing the motor function because of the disease pathology. So that was kind of showing a connection between the cellular model, the machine learning model, and then we saw in the animal model that that was recapitulating. And then we also went back to postmortem samples and were able to show that the neuroprotective state that we were seeing across those animal and cellular models was actually showing up in postmortem patients with C9. So a lot of what we're doing is just mapping the space and trying to draw connections and kind of build more and more evidence that any of the biological signaling that, that we're looking at is relevant therapeutically for patients before we do the ultimate test, which is a trial and getting it into humans themselves. And to add to that, another kind of key aha or exciting moment was when the second target that we predicted would be effective was also effective in animal models. The first target, whenever you're building a platform, you know, it's quite easy to, to forget that, you know, the point of the platform is not just to make one therapeutic or identify one therapeutic target. It's to unlock key biology that enables multiple therapeutic targets. And so I got really excited when the second hypothesis actually started bearing fruit as well in, in the animal models. because. At the end of the day, tying it back to our ultimate goal of Modulo is we want this panel of microglia modulating therapeutics because we want to help not just C9R72 ALS FTE, but all neurodegenerative diseases. You know, the neuroimmune system cuts across every neurological condition and being able to leverage it could have a profound impact on, you know, kind of human life. Right. That really emphasizes the designation between drug hunting where you're finding one target, perhaps because you've studied it your whole life, or it's just been implicated in a pathway you're looking at, which is not a very generalizable thing in drug designing, which is what Modulo is doing, where you're creating the system that will produce targets that are validated. And like you said, with the second one, actually show that the first 
one and the platform is, is actually working. So it's really gratifying. Let's jump back out and touch on what's next for Modulo. Where are you today? What's the state of the company like and, and where are you heading in the next few few months to year? Yeah, so we're super excited about the programs we've been talking about. Scott mentioned the first therapeutic target and I was just talking about the second we are rapidly moving those programs forward to the state where we can take them into the clinic. What that means for us from where we are right now, we've been using tool compounds to validate the biology, and we've been developing our own proprietary compounds that we would then take into the clinic. And so we're right in the middle of that process for our first target. And we're hoping that within the next you know, nine to 12 months, we have a development candidate which can then go through what's called IND enabling studies so that we can file our investigation on the drug application with the FDA. And that enables us to go into clinical trials. And of course, the clinical trials are broken in, into different phases. But so in the next couple of months, our, our core focus is one on generating this proprietary version of our you know, first therapeutic compound, two, expanding the capabilities of our platform. So one of the bottlenecks when it comes to being able to deploy our, our platform against other indications is just the ability to generate patient-derived microglia cells, neurons, and astrocytes. And so we've been focusing on automating the process of culturing induced pluripotent stem cells and then hope to eventually automate the process of differentiating those cells as well. So we're really work, working on increasing the throughput. How many cells do we have that, that we can work with? So that's another you know, kind of core focus in the next you know, three to six months or so. And then beyond that, it's continuing to understand the different microglia cell states. And one of the key ways that we can do that is using the platform to predict what are the right perturbations that we want to make or how we want to change the baseline microglia cells to then evaluate whether they get shifted into a state that's interesting and maybe relevant for a different disease or for the same disease from a therapeutic standpoint. And so we're also focusing on, on that work as well. Where is Modulo in 10 years, if all goes right? In 10 years, hopefully we have a couple of drugs on the market, you know, that are making a significant difference in patient lives. And we have a whole pipeline of drugs that are coming up against, you know, all different neurological conditions, most likely with a bunch of different partnerships. You know, as a, a small company, we will never be able to have a, a deep pipeline that we're developing entirely on our own. But we do hopefully have the wherewithal to develop, you know, a small handful of those and then have additional drugs coming through via partnerships. And in an ideal world, we've mapped out the key states of microglia. We've disseminated that information as well. And so it's not just Modulo that's chipping away at this problem, but you know, the broader scientific community as well. Amazing. I look forward to that. Are there any heroes, guides, books that you've read or been particularly influenced by that you sort of look up to as you think about company building, entrepreneurship, Modulo in general? I know, Mike, you mentioned your personal story in terms of what motivates you every day. My hero is, you know, my best friend, Niels, and, and his family. They get me out of bed every morning and give me the energy to, you know, kind of fight the battles to try and, and make this a reality. That would be my number one. I found there's an amazing book by Donna Nakazawa called The Angel and the Assassin that's all about the microglia cell and its impact across disease. And she does an amazing job balancing patient stories with the science. And so found that book early on, and that was a big influence in terms of the role of the neuroimmune system across all cognitive disorders. 
and a little bit more abstract, but Jane Jacobs has this amazing book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities that really focuses on going beyond reductionism when you're thinking about really complex problems. And I think this applies to everything, and in particular neuro, where it's very easy to have a reductionist approach zooming in on the neurons themselves when it's really the community of all the cell types and the cross-cellular interaction that is the most important. So I think those two books are worth checking out for folks that haven't read them. Cool. I'm definitely going to order them and drop them in the show notes. So one question that we like to close with and ask every guest on the podcast is, if, when Modulo makes you billionaires, what would you do with money? If, when Modulo makes me a billionaire, I would love the ability to continue to invest in cutting edge scientific research. A lot of my career has been spent kind of at that intersection. And I think that there's a huge amount of potential, you know, to be unlocked still. I think that even if Modulo is a tremendous success, there will still be huge opportunities in the neurospace because that has just been historically underserved and, and underinvested in. And that would be an area that I would be very inclined to continue, you know, kind of focusing energy on. One of the nice things about having the resources internally is that you can follow up on what may seem like crazy ideas and see if there's any you know, kind of fruit there without having to necessarily show a, a very directed ROI in the financial sense. But it is a, still a significant ROI in the sense of increasing human knowledge and understanding what avenues may be interesting for future experimentation and exploration. So that would be, you know, kind of my core focus. I'd love to be able to deploy, you know, kind of that amount of resource back into this space to keep making progress. From my perspective, I would reframe it as important problems to work on, focus on and finding inspiration. I don't tend to think about things about like when there'd be some condition in my life where it would change. I think any problem that would be important when you have a billion dollars is also important now. So thinking about what is a first step that, that you can towards any problem. And money, of course, unlocks the ability to work on more at once and to paralyze that effort. And so I think thinking about progress on health and longevity around cellular intelligence, thinking about from modeling, but also from using the cells to build systems or to build tools for therapeutics is, is really, really interesting. I think being able to tackle problems with education and advancing technology and, and communication across society are super interesting problems. I, in general, like to think about, you know, how would you invest, like, or what would your next step be now for any problem that is important? What would you do with 10K, a million dollars, a billion dollars for that problem domain? Whether it's yours or not, I think it's a, a, a good way of sorting through problems and sorting through where there's sort of like, root issues or, or core next steps that you could take. And of course, the more money that you have, the more trusted folks that you need around you to, to help allocate that towards important root problems. For sure. You both are true entrepreneurs. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Are there any last thoughts or shout outs that you want to make to the audience? Where can listeners find you if they want to learn more about Modulo or get in touch? For one, thank you, Ami, for having us. We really appreciated the opportunity to chat with you today. You can reach us www.modulo.bio, and we'd be happy to you know, kind of chat with anyone. Amazing. We'll have to have you on here in a couple years once you're in clinic. That sounds great. Thanks again, Boat. Thanks, me. 
We hope you enjoy this episode of Near Frontier. Links to external content mentioned are available in the show notes and at nearfrontier.com, where you can also find other episodes of the show. To leave feedback or suggest future guests, you can find us on Twitter at Cantos.